Welcome to episode number 190, I look on my sheet of paper, 192 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Kriegsman, and CXO Talk brings together the most innovative people in the world who are focused on digital disruption, digital transformation, and the impact of technology on organizations and on society. Today's show is really a special one. We're talking about the impact of the events of September 11, 2001 on this, our notions of disruption, disruption, our notions of organizational resiliency and leadership. And we actually have three guests today. And let's start off, and I'll ask each of them to introduce themselves in turn. David Bray is the CIO for the Federal Communications Commission. David, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Michael? I am excellent. So, David, uh, tell us what you do. Sure. So right now I am the Senior Executive and Chief Information Officer at the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I had signed up uh, for a little-known program called the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, and was actually supposed to brief the CIA and the FBI on September 11, 2001, at what we would do if a better event was to happen. So... Obviously, a lot of memories there, and we'll be interested in talking about both what happened and also what happened after all of that. Fantastic. And then at FCC headquarters, we have Karen Evans and Tony Summerlin. Uh, Tony, please, welcome to CXO Talk. This is your first time, and give us a brief introduction about yourself. Uh, Tony Summerlin. I work for Dr. Bray here at the FCC. Um, I've been here about th as long as David has three years, but I uh, worked in and out of government for 30 years. Luckily, not all of it, uh, just a small part of it. And um, I'm leading the modernization efforts for on David's behalf and the FCC. And rumor, Tony, rumor has it that across the government, when people think about IT and the CIO role, that they look to you. That's the rumor I heard. Well, Karen can probably say a lot to that since I supported her in the White House for seven years, but uh, I'm the disposable object that gets moved uh, along to get things done. So um, I make a lot of contacts, friends, and the other people on a regular basis. <laughs> Contacts, but friends. When you're, trying, when you're trying to disrupt uh, people, they get very upset. So I would say it's probably 50-50 whether or not someone thinks I'm a positive or not influence. But I'd like to think I am. But we make a lot of change. Well, we'll definitely talk more about that. And Karen Evans is the head of the U.S. Cyber Challenge and really had the first role of U.S. government CIO, even though at that time it, wasn't, it didn't have the title CIO. So Karen Evans, welcome to CXO Talk. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me back. And uh, 
I would think based on our title, Disruption and Resiliency, that that is Tony's nickname. He is a disruptor and he's very resilient. So he is the embodiment of what we're talking about today. Okay, well, in, so then let's begin. Tony, let's go back to September 11, 2001. And where were you and what happened and what was the impact on your business, your organization at that time? Well, I, I was actually um, sitting on a racehorse, exercising a racehorse at the racetrack and came back and saw what happened and rushed back to the office. And uh, I, it, the world definitely changed. We're in the middle with uh, Mark Foreman of designing the eGov initiatives, which Karen was a huge part of and trying to change government from the eGov perspective, making government more efficient. And certainly in the face of what happened in 9-11, it added a whole new level of difficulty since people's focus uh, changed necessarily away from uh, government and technology and to the security of the American people. And uh... Karen, what was your, where were you and what was your situation at that time? So um, on that day specifically, I worked for the Office of Justice Programs, which is in the Department of Justice that makes federal grants out to state and local governments. The task force that Tony's talking about, I think it's, it's really key, especially since we're talking about disruption and resiliency, because that really is what... Mark Foreman was attempting to do to use technology to disrupt the federal government services, um, make them more resilient. But my particular area in that was working government to government. And we had one called disaster assistance, disaster benefits. But it was very focused at that point on physical uh, types of things like hurricanes, storms. And I remember that working group, even Tony and the Office of Management and Budget, giving me a hard time because I had spent two years through the Office of Justice programs talking about terrorism because there was, we had had that big incident in Japan. Remember the sarin gas right. on the subway and stuff like that? So, so I was very focused on it because we had been training the nation on, on doing threat assessments. So when that day happened, I was in Washington, D.C. at the Office of Justice Programs, and all telecommunications went down within a matter of maybe 10 minutes of um, seeing the uh, actual buildings be attacked on CNN. I remember us all watching it on CNN. And then the rumors started flying about what was happening in Washington, D.C., and then the third plane then hit the Pentagon. And so, like... I just remember everybody wanting to run out into the streets and we were like, no, 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 no. Cause this was everything that we were trained on. Like, that's not what we're supposed to do. Cause that's exactly what the terrorists want us to do is to run out on the streets. And what if this isn't over and they, they take over the subway. So it was really trying to figure out like, you're really stressed, but trying to provide services at the same time. So because we were we were a rebel component within the Department of Justice, we weren't configured like everyone else. And so ours were the only email services working in the entire department. And so we were actually the ones that had to communicate with everybody else outside of the department to be able to mobilize 
the things that had to happen between the FBI, the White House, the Office of Victims of Crime. And we actually went into the mode of implementing our plan because it was happening live. But I will tell you on a side note, we were still getting emails from the task force group, like Tony and those guys. <laughs> and because everything was due in, all this stuff was due in. So they were still sending us notes. So we sent notes back. And I remember sending one note back saying, okay, so now it has happened. I'm redoing the paper because within a matter of hours, you're going to have to provide a response about what should the White House do as a result of this terrorist attack. That's right. And David Bray, you are, and I should say Dr. David Bray, you're the CIO of the FCC. And give us your historical note on what happened, where, where were you, what were you doing at 9-11? And then we'll talk about some of the lessons learned. Sure. So that specific day, September 11th, as mentioned, I was actually supposed to give a presentation at nine o'clock to the CIA and the FBI as to what we would do technology-wise if a biotech event happened. Uh, and actually leading up to that, for those that remember, in March of 2001, the Agile Manifesto had come out, which was encouraging Agile development versus waterfall development way back in 2001. And I was an early proponent of that in part because we had to get things out as quickly as possible, even before 9-11. Um, and I was being told to get back in my box, follow the five-year enterprise plan, follow the five-year enterprise budget strategy. And in fact, I was a bit of a heretic, uh, and sort of like Karen, where she sort of said she was a rebel rebel constituency within the Department of Justice. I, I don't know if I was necessarily mainstream CDC in trying to push for agile development and rapid prototyping. Uh, but fortunately, we did do some rapid prototyping so that when 9-11 happened, we actually did have technology in place. Uh, that day, uh, most of the CDC was sent home from work because we didn't know if the CDC might be a target. Uh, but those of us that were still at the bioterrorism program, we loaded computers in the cars, set up an underground bunker, and then got people up in the air to both New York and D.C. to help with the response in case there were any biological consequences as to what happened with 9-11. And so... For, for all of you, what were some of the, the key lessons that you learned on that day or, or subsequently thinking about it in terms of the types of disruptions that can hit an organization and how to think about recovery and then in the longer run think about resilience? So I'll toss out the first one, which I think was a common theme you already heard here, which is generally it's the people that are the potential heretics or the people that aren't the mainstream of the organization that are usually the ones that are actually getting the organization prepared for a bad day, and they're not appreciated until the bad day happens. I think that's definitely the case of both Karen and Tony as well as myself. Um, and so one of the things that I try to do going forward is encourage a diversity of thoughts, and if everybody's thinking the same thing, try to find someone who's not thinking the same thing because that'll actually help increase both the cognitive diversity of the organization and of the group, but also make sure that we're prepared and looking at things from all angles should a bad day happen. So Tony, uh, diversity of thought, that seems uh, like a key attribute in the long run of creating resiliency, cognitive diversity, David just said. Oh. There's no question. I mean, diversity, the diversity of thinking, and that's one of the things we learned, as, as Karen pointed out, we learned that in a very big way uh, during the eGov initiative. 
if we hadn't had those, how many, a hundred people? A hundred people. A hundred people uh, narrowing down to 24 eGov initiatives and the diversity of thinking was essential in the way we approach things. And without that, I don't think we would have gotten very far. I mean, the traditional thinking was only going to give you the traditional answer. So uh, I think I think that was the genius of putting it together in that form. But one of the other parts that worked really well is all these people existed in government. Nobody flew them in from the left west coast or uh, from overseas somewhere. They all exist in government. So you didn't need anybody else to come in to tell them what needed to be done. They all knew it. They just needed a platform and an audience and a vehicle to get things done. And the group did extraordinary things. I mean, there was no question that what was pushed out during that time, considering that this was all being done in the face of a new threat that the United States had never known, uh, was extraordinary. And I, I think that uh, Mark and especially Karen, with their seven years of pushing this forward, if you look at everything that was pushed forward during that time frame, it was pretty extraordinary in the face of everything that was going on globally. Karen, please, you're going to, I, go well, ahead. Well, I was going to jump in a little bit about the, the um, difference of, of the thought and, and how to do this and con, con, uh, build a little bit off of what Tony said. And a lot of this, I think, really comes down to the people who have to keep the trains running, like if you come out of operations and you only have to fail once somewhere along the line in your career <laughs> and uh, and you figure out, you go through um, every scenario that could possibly happen so that you can then provide the services. And so that might make you a rebel, like David is saying, thinking about, you know, okay, well, waterfall wasn't working, so let's switch to agile because this is going to happen. Well, it's really very scenario-based. And if you come out of an operations background, you go through every scenario up to the point about what if the world comes to an end and the government still exists. And that scenario type of things that that the federal government employees actually work through and say, okay, and what services would you need to have should this catastrophic event happen? Because it's always about, we call it coop and cog in the federal government, it's, you know, and so it's the continuity of operations and the continuity of government. So what do you have to do to keep operations going? And then what part of government continues to run? And so we, we're kind of programmed under coop and cog. What happens within an hour? And then what has to happen 30 days in order to keep the country stable? David, uh, this notion of coop and cog. But this this type of scenario planning certainly existed before 9-11. And so what changed in the aftermath of 9-11 as far as this goes? Sure. I think what happened was a lot of the cases up until 9-11, uh, if you were thinking outside the box like Karen and Tony uh, or myself, uh, it was kind of you were pushed to the side, that people were really thinking about continuity of operations in the face of a Cold War-like threat, and they weren't thinking about what might be on the horizon, what might be new. And I think that's that's probably true not just of public service. I think that's true of any organization, which is they always expect the future to be like the past, only slightly different. 
when in fact all evidence to the contrary is the future is often not alike the past. And so uh, if you can remember of 2001, we'd had you know 10 years of the supposed peace dividend after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, and so people were still pretty much, if they were thinking about continuity of government, continuity of operations, it was probably nuclear. It probably was thinking about something large scale and nation state backed and not thinking about sort of a lone individual. Um, of course, then after 9-11, then came about 10 years of focusing very much on terrorism and not thinking about other things that might not even be terrorism related, that might be natural disaster related, that might be uh, some other form of disruption. And so I think as a leader, you have to be very cautious about making sure your organization does not fall into the trap of thinking the future is going to be like the past, only slightly different. And you need to help them sort of expand their aperture and say, okay, well, this is what might happen, but what else might happen that we're not thinking about yet? Tony Summerlin, you are, for the most part, behind the scenes inside the government, running IT with David, working for David inside the FCC, and also providing other organizations within the government outside the FCC with it advice on how to run their IT operations. And at the same time, so, there, so that's, a, that's a case for stability. But at the same time, I know you're trying to drive change with the cloud, drive organizational change. And so how do you, how do you reconcile the demand for stability on the one hand with the need and the desire for disruptive change on the other hand? Well, I don't actually run anything. I, I support things, but uh, we have great people that run stuff. But what I try to do is uh, move stuff from what I consider maybe jogging or walking to running. So what we really have to do is pull the rug out from under people. I think I'm using too many analogies, but uh, people are very comfortable doing what they're doing. And in government, just like in most places, you get rewarded for things running the way they're supposed to run, and you don't have the time to look at different ways of doing it. So if you have a fall guy that says, okay, we're going to stop doing it that way, we're going to do it this way, and someone has someone to blame it on, that, that's usually me, then they'll move along the path because the only loss is not seeing me anymore, which people are pretty happy with at the point. But it has to be, in this case, especially in the FCC, it has to be dollar for dollar. Everything new we did had to be funded by cutting something else. So it's a very painful process, but 50% of the people are okay with it. And out of that 50%, maybe 25% actually back it. But when things start coming around and they start seeing successes and nobody's getting shot, um, it, it moves pretty well. But you have to partner with the best of the best, as in software providers and integrators. I mean, there are people that get up every day to do the best job they can. People don't get up to do nothing. So you just get all of them on board with a, a nice, easy, well, not easy, but a nice path that has a very clear end goal. And you have leadership like Dr. Bray, who clearly sets what the light looks like at the end of the tunnel. And then it, it's easier to bring people along. But nothing is easy because there is no reward. I mean, the, the reward in doing a good thing has usually been quashed, unfortunately, over the years. So 
it's you it's no one's fault it just has to be done in a way that somebody else can take the heat and luckily our chairman and dr bray and our managing director are all willing to take the heat and when it works that way from the top it's it's not really as hard as one might think well of course there there is that old saying that says no good deed shall go unpunished True. <laughs> um, I was going to say that you're hitting the nail on the head, um, Michael, with the fact that if you want to encourage resiliency, you really have to encourage a change in the incentives. And as Tony was pointing out, there's really no reward for taking risk in public service. And that's, that's okay. That just means that those of us that want to do it, want to do it for something other than some tangible reward. We want to do it to try and actually make a positive difference to the world or the nation. Well, see, so then I would argue that is the reward. And so um, when you look at public service and you look at what is the motivator and how to create an environment where disruption is appreciated, because you're talking about, like, how do I bring in new technology? How do I integrate new processes? How do I change things? And that that reward is in the long run, you may not necessarily be uh, rewarded in the short run, but in the long run, you're rewarded because I look now and I see a lot of the things that we were pushing really hard for that I have my butt handed to me more times than who knows what, but the nation is doing it now. I mean, there's the embrace of things. I mean, I can't go, uh, and so I'll share this one little thing. This is really, this is kind of funny i think it's funny my husband says i have a techie sense of humor here but um my son just uh graduated with a public policy degree and they were talking about the implications of different policies coming out of the white house and they actually picked up one of these tech policies which was mine dealing with ipv6 and all this other stuff like that right and so that was a three-year project that was a (laughs) three-year project but the point is is that my son was in the class and the professor was saying a bunch of different things and um and so my son put his hand up and said no that's not the intent of the policy and here's how it works and here's what you know and he went through this whole big process about why the white house does what it does to try to stimulate you know the economy to have a market you know um response and he just kind of went he goes and how would you know he says look at the signature on that policy and he looked at it, he says, that's my mom. <laughs> and so he came back and he goes, I can't believe that they, the way that they're interpreting these things. And so so that's the reward. It's not the instant gratification that we get in public service. It's when you know that you're making a difference and it may not come back to you until 10 or 15 years later, like where we are today. I, it's 15 years after September 11th. And a lot of the things that we fought really hard and said needed to get in place are now in place. And so, you know, there are things that the nation will never know Um you know, all the struggles that everybody went through to get them in place. But there is a lot of resiliency now in the infrastructure. We, we have an, a very interesting question from a regular listener, Arsalan Khan, who's asking on Twitter, are there incentives in place to encourage people in the government to think differently? So I would say sort of what both um, Karen and Tony was saying, which is one, there's a long-term impact that you do get to see 10 to 15 years later, things that you worked on and pushed through to get done. But then two, it is a responsibility of any good leader to try and actually push things forward. Um, 
So I think both what Karen tried to do when she was in her role as federal CIO, uh, my role as FCC CIO, is make sure at least for those people that are on your team, you are rewarding them, even if the larger ecosystem hasn't taken that on. Um, but I do think that's a larger conversation, which is if public service was designed to be risk averse, partly because the founders didn't want it to change overnight, are there parts of it where maybe we need to give more license to taking risk and experimenting? Um, but also it's partly, I mean, I would also say another reward of working in public service is you get to work with people like Tony and Karen. I mean, uh, Tony is one of those wonderful sort of individuals that I don't think people really think of when they think of public service and that he races horses, he races cars, he runs races themselves and marathons. He's fiercely loyal. And you talked about the balance between stability and disruption. Um, Tony definitely would never take on a stability project. He'd get bored, but he's all about disruption. And I think that's one of the sort of untold stories about the people behind the curtain in public service. Those are the people we get to work with and that's itself a great reward itself. And we have a, a, another question from Twitter. I always like to take the questions from the audience because that's what's most pressing on their mind. And Chris Peterson is asking, is there a difference in change agents and pushback from political appointees versus government careerists versus before or after an election? Anybody want to take that one? So let me take that one, okay? Because um, having done them, having been on both sides, having been a career person for 25 years, and then being a political person before I left, and David's still a career person, um, I think I should answer that question. No, so <laughs> go for it. Okay. You're qualified. I'm qualified. Yeah. So you know there there are different ways to lead. And the, the way to really think about this is, is that political leadership um, has short tenure. Career leadership, and if you thought about this as a project or a program, they're working on a program and political leadership on short milestones along the way. And um, career leadership is in it for the long haul, right? So they're still striving to the same outcome, but one is making sure that everything continues on regardless of who's at the top. Now, you know, is there different rewards for what happens in between of these guys um, and how to do change agents and what are the change agents? It, I would say it all depends on communication again and leadership. And so there's a lot of communication and depending on the leadership style of the political individuals that come in and the tone set by the president at the top, that drives a lot of things down through political leadership. But there is this level of career I call them the weebies, and that they, they are they are categorized as we be here when you be gone, and so if you that and everybody gets it when you say the weebies, and so that layer has to really be penetrated, and you have to really really strive to show them why you are trying to get to that outcome, and if they buy in then they are the strongest change agents that you can ever have in a program. And don't, these are, these are courageous people and they all exist. And that's why I love working for people in government and they're all there. I mean, all you have to do is present the opportunity and the weebies. I, I took Mark Foreman to meet a CIO when he first came in and the CIO told him, 
yeah, I think that's all very interesting and I'm not going to do any of it and you'll be gone and I'll still be here. So have a nice day. So those people exist, uh, but I don't think it's the propensity to behave that way. But you also had people like Karen that would have um, folks come in from industry and tell her she would never get a job for the rest of her life because the way that she talked to them and the rules she put in. And she was like, yeah, well, I don't really care. So uh, it depends what the goal is of that individual, whether political or career. If their goal is to go into private industry and be really well loved. Um, and there's some people certainly like Dave Winogren is a great example. Yes. That, was a tremendous careerist who's fantastic in the private sector. So people can stick to their to their gumption and their notions and do the right thing and get great jobs leaving government. Uh, so it's it's a tenuous line, though. I mean, I watched Karen get her butt kicked a bunch of times by government and industry. And industry. <laughs> uh, well, well, we have another. This is very interesting. And uh, and by the way, I want to mention that there have been thousands of people watching us as we talk. And so I want to thank every single person who is watching. We're talking right now about lessons in organizational resiliency learned after 9-11. The, the events of 9-11. And we're speaking with David Bray, who is the chief information officer of the Federal Communications Commission, and Tony Summerlin, who is the special advisor at the FCC, and Karen Evans, who runs the U.S. Cyber Challenge and really had the role of the first United States CIO. So we have another question from Arsalan Khan, who asks, is it possible to enlist government contractors to help with the change process? How would you harness the government co contractors to help with this? I hear laughter. I think Tony has to take that one. He's the one that's yeah. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I am. So a I serious question, a right? Believer. I'm a strong believer in harnessing, and uh, we never would have achieved what we were lucky enough to achieve at the FCC without harnessing is a really good word. I mean, I believe in partnering to a very, like, blood brothers extent um, with our, our integrators and vendors, and IBM, well, we partnered with a company to move our data centers to West Virginia, do everything necessary in six months. If you didn't have a blood relationship, that couldn't happen. So the only warning I give to people when they come into the FCC to give us, to sell us something or give us something is that we're really serious. And I learned a lot of this from Karen when she was at the White House. It's like, you really want to do that? This is what you have to do to invest, to work with us. And every company we have nine SaaS products, and every single one of those companies are deeply embedded with us. And if we can't pick up the phone and call the top people at the company and they respond to us, then th we just don't do business with them. So it's not only possible, but it has to happen. And um, Avi Bender is leading an effort now over at Commerce right. that's a JV effort with industry. And I think that has to happen. And 
And I really don't see that much resistance from industry if you go to the right people. Well, and the other part of this, when you're looking at the portfolio <clears throat> overall, right? When I was managing the portfolio, it was $71 billion. So $71 billion. Now it's at $85 billion. So when you are talking about what your requirements are, you know, we're a good portion of the market. So you just have to really be clear. I think Dr. Bray is really very clear about what his expectations, what his vision, what he wants to achieve for the FCC. And when you do that, then contractors will respond because they want to be part of success. Yeah. No one wants to be part of a failure. But what really happens is I think you have to be clear about what that outcome is and you have to share the success with them as well as and they can't walk away from you when you're failing. And yep. that happens a lot. Federal contractors will throw the government agency under the bus and that's not right either. And so you really have to have that shared partnership going forward. But I think, David, if you talked a little bit about that clear vision that you have, then then industry wants to partner with you. Yeah. I agree 100 percent that I mean, that's why I use the word, Michael, I use the word public service, because that is first and foremost, the public and public private partnerships and then government professionals. I think the U.S. is great when we actually have our industry in alignment with what's being done with local communities and what's in alignment with what's being done in public sector. I think sometimes we end up with industry going in a different direction than what's being done by public sector and a different direction than local communities. And that's where it really takes leadership to try to bring them all together with a clear vision. And that's what hopefully we've brought to the FCC. And I think that's been the secret to our success over the last three years, aside from having Tony on the inside as the equivalent of the holy hand grenade uh, organization. So. <laughs> let's uh let's shift gears slightly and tony i know that you have been very involved in the effort at the fcc and i'm sure uh in the federal government more broadly to move to the cloud so tell us about your tell us share your views of the cloud and what's the relation between cloud and resiliency and any any other perspectives you have on, on the cloud? Well, we, the, the first thing that started this was data center consolidation, which Karen uh, uh, wrote up before the end of the last administration. And unfortunately, we have a branch of government that's supposed to facilitate contracting and so forth to help that happen. And they haven't helped very much, which is unfortunate. But to skip over and just to go to cloud now is a very real possibility. So we had to move our two data centers out of the FCC necessarily because, because number one, I can't understand why anybody in the world would want a data center in downtown DC and the nuclear zone, but, um, and the expense associated with it. But because of accounting rules and so forth in government, I won't go into, you can't actually quantify what it costs. So if you ask somebody what it costs to have their data center, on K Street, they say it doesn't cost anything, it's included. So those things need to be put aside. But if you're not gonna move the data center or consolidate data centers, then at least take a look at the applications you have. And if they can be modified in a way that they can be in a cloud environment, they should be there. Why? Because ultimate resiliency lies in the cloud. When people say, well, I, want, I don't know that the cloud is safe. These people are businesses. They stay in business by staying operational. 
if there's anyone that's going to keep a center running, it's someone that has a cloud. So it, I think the entire argument about cybersecurity and resiliency mm -hmm. is ludicrous. Um, comparing a data center to a true cloud environment, another form of data center, but a true cloud environment where you're slicing and dicing applications and you're slicing and dicing space and storage is so much more resilient than anything any agency could afford, even DOD. I mean, people cannot afford it. And as uh, David has pointed out many times, on cybersecurity is the ultimate reason. We can't afford as a small place, the commission can't buy all the tools necessary to be cyber secure. But cloud infrastructures provide a level of security that otherwise is unavailable and people provide pipes to the cloud that are absolutely secure. So I think the argument about whether or not to go to cloud is silly and buying applications that are born and bred in the cloud that are just SaaS applications is the way to go. And if you're building platforms, you have Azure, SoftLayer, mm -hmm. AWS, you have platforms that are cloud-based to build them on and you have ultimate resiliency in those environments with access from anywhere. So it supports working from home, it supports BYOB, it supports whatever other functions you want not to be at the office in downtown DC or somewhere else. So I wanna bring it back a little, uh, I'm gonna bring it back to 9-11 and then fast forward to cloud. So on when 9-11 and all of this stuff happened, there was one news service that actually stayed up through the whole thing which was CNN. So we wanted to find out who was actually hosting and provisioning CNN. And it turned out it was Mark Andreessen, okay? Mark Andreessen's new company. And he always wanted to talk to me. So he wanted me to buy provision services. So if you think about this, this is 15 years ago. So we're running a data center. So what we said to him was, so he was actually thinking about cloud before cloud was called cloud. So think about that in 2001. Well, the other part of that was we said, you know what we're really interested in? What software were you using to provision as fast as you were provisioning, given how you had to scale up and surge in order not to go down? So he told us, I said, would you sell that to us? So they started thinking about it, repackaged yeah. it, and that's Opsware that yeah. he ended up spinning off, selling out, but he was working on cloud. So now come fast forward to cloud. So Tony's talking about apps and all this other stuff. People are looking at it because of the argument. To me, there is the enablers. No, yeah, the, I'm at the point where like, you don't even need a data center anymore. We shouldn't be talking about data center consolidation. It should be data center closure. So if you look at this administration's policy, it actually talks about data center consolidation and closure now. Because you for resiliency and disruption, you want to go. So retooling applications, I, and now you talk about government uh, contractors and industry responding, there's technology out there right now that knows that all these organizations, what's prohibiting them from going to the cloud is app re-engineering. So they're actually coming up with technology so that you don't have to re-engineer your app, that you can take advantage of the cloud and they're gonna be right in the middle. And to me, I think we're going to bypass this whole argument about the apps and the cybersecurity, and we're going to end up buying this one little, I think, like a connector. But this this technology in there, and industry is is responding to that. 
and it's going to be both in private industry as well as public sector. And I think that's this disruption that's going to that's going to happen in the next maybe, I'd say, 12 months to 18 months. You're going to see that type of technology come out that's going to allow us to just fully take use of cloud. So yesterday on the Oracle earnings call, Larry Ellison made the comment that on-premise is here, we're going to have, the comment he made was coexistence will be there, be in place for the next 10 years between on-premise and the cloud. Yeah, yeah. Possibly, well, I, I mean, on-premise should be dying. It should be a slow, uh, ideally faster death than some people are predicting because I think if you're on-premise, you can't be fast. I mean, one of the biggest advantages we got by moving to the cloud at FCC was you'd ask us to stand up a new application in the past, it would have taken six to seven months to do the procurement and get a working prototype. Now we have software as a service, we can get a new application prototype in less than 48 hours. And so oh, that's the right. biggest advantage. And so any organization that tries to do things on premise, you better be okay with not being fast. And I don't know how many organizations are okay with that. Uh, then the second, as both Karen and Tony mentioned, is you do have to have the resiliency. What do you do when there's a surge, uh, both a surge because more people want to view things or there's more traffic, um, but also a surge because maybe there's the distributed denial of service attack. And so again, I don't, I don't see the value of on-premise. And then finally, just the effectiveness that really you get more money focused on development versus trying to maintain systems. Here at the FCC, we were spending about 85% and growing of our budget for IT just to maintain our systems. Now it's less than 50%. So um, I would actually say, and this is not just true for public service, any, any company looking at how they want to exist in the, in the next year or two, it, you should be 100% public cloud. I don't know why you'd want to do anything on premise if only, I mean, maybe the only thing is right now that's holding you back is you can't move your existing sunk investments in legacy applications. But that's where you get the Karen's point, which is there are companies that are coming along that will allow you to jump much faster to getting off those legacy applications to the cloud. Yeah, and we're working at the FCC, we're working with companies that are willing to take our kit out of the building, move it to their cloud environment and start translating our apps all as mm -hmm. part of a service. So. It moves away, but the whole roadmap is based on the fact that they're going to be rewriting and moving the apps. The problem with running old legacy systems in the cloud, even if you do the translations necessary, is the costs are extraordinary. But even a, a Tony Scott gave a speech, he said, and someone challenged him on the cost differences. He said, it's not about cost, it's about agility and resiliency, and you'll never get them in your data center. Okay. So we have just a couple of minutes left, and this has been a very interesting discussion of the cloud. But why don't we, in our last, in our last few minutes, let's just go around the virtual room, as it were, and your, each of your final parting thoughts on maintaining resiliency and the role of leadership in that. So uh, David, shall we start with you? Sure. Um, so one thing I want to say just real quick on the cloud conversation, I would love to see a virtual conversation between Mark Benioff of Salesforce, CEO of Salesforce and Larry Olson. That would be a fun cloud versus on-premise discussion that I would pay money to see. Because um, I, think, I think they have differently, definitely strong views. But uh, closing thought, the one closing thought I would lead is 
um, as I mentioned, it takes leadership. It takes leadership that can help create incentives for your team to think differently, to act differently, because it's not just enough to just think differently and really encourage the risk takers to, to look outside the box and say, well, every day right now, it looks like things are being okay. What are the things that we're not thinking about that's on the future that may be a disruption like a 9-11 like event, or maybe the disruption because the marketplace may change or our customer base might change. We may have a disruption of that sort. And that's where you really wanna have people thinking differently. Uh, specifically for public service, I think we really need to have a strong conversation that brings together Congress, brings together the executive branch, brings together industry, the private sector and communities because right now there are things such as encryption debates, uh, such as debates about bio and things like that, where really we're going in different directions, yet I think at the end of the day, we all wanna see the same thing, which is a safe, secure, free and private, you know, well-being of the United States and as the world. So can we have a conversation about how we can continue to be resilient in an era in which technology is moving forward exponentially? Fantastic. And Karen Evans, your, very quickly, your final thoughts on resiliency and leadership. I think if you want to have true resiliency, it requires leadership and the adoption of disruptive technology and innovation, because you can't have the resiliency without innovation, because what everything David's talked about is innovation of thinking, which requires the leadership to allow it to be embraced in the organization. Okay. And I couldn't agree more. Tony Summerlin, I mean, our chair, you, I our was gonna say, you get the last word. Our chairman is a courageous guy. When uh, we moved our, our data centers and we went offline, they tried to attack him on the hill. He said, I absolutely refuse to apologize because it's what had to be done and it's the right thing to do. Uh, there are pain points. I mean, there are pain points, but it has to happen. And unplugging people is always unpleasant. But uh, there are plenty of technologists out there to help. And I think there are plenty of people in government and elsewhere that have their heart and soul in making a change. I, you know, the incentive it should be the outcome. I don't think these pay things or anything like that will help. And um, I think what the government has to do in particular is not provide disincentives. Mm -hmm. And other than that, just letting people move forward with their thinking. Most, I, I'm a consultant. Most places I go, people already know what they need. They just need somebody to tell it. Okay. So letting people, giving people the freedom to solve the problems in the right way. And so you're, you're a positive, very positive person, aren't you? You're an optimist. Me? Oh, I, I am. Yeah. I, I wake up every day, totally paranoid, but very optimistic. Yeah, he's a disruptive optimist. A dis I like that, a disruptive <laughs> optimist. And on that note, it is time to end this very interesting conversation. And it just flew by. And I'd like to thank the thousands of people who have watched this show today. And special thank you to our guests. You've been watching episode 192 of CXO Talk. And today we've been speaking with David Bray, who is the Chief Information Officer of the Federal Communications Commission, Tony Summerlin, who is Special Advisor at the FCC, and Karen Evans, 
who is the leader of the U.S. Cyber Challenge and was, in fact, the first person in the CIO role for the United States federal government ever. What an awesome show. And I also really want to thank Livestream because the Livestream folks provide our video infrastructure and they just help make CXO Talk possible. So thank you to Livestream. Thank you to everybody. And we'll see you next time.